So this month is the month of Advent. Advent is a, a word that we get from Latin, Adventus, which means the coming. Advent is the celebration of the coming of Christ, and with Advent upon us, or as we also say, Christmas, uh, this month I'm offering a sermon series that I'm calling Christmas Christology. Ology, the study of Christ, Christology, we are studying Christ, and so for Advent season, it just seems timely, hey, it's his birthday, let's talk about the birthday boy, let's study him. Uh, This Christmas season, we're committing ourselves on Sunday mornings to study the Christ, the real Jesus. Inevitably, around the holidays, there's always people coming out, talking smack about, you know, whatever Jesus, did you know that he's, you know, he, he rides a unicorn or, you know, they're always coming up with something goofy. So it's always important that we kind of study our stuff and know how to engage the culture Uh, But more importantly, if we're often bogged down by defending ourselves from wacky ideas about Jesus, if we never take the time to actually dig into uh, who he is and and what he has for his people, we're going to miss out on a lot. So in this series, we're digging into the ancient evidence and primary sources to take a deep dive into the pages of the Bible, the testimony of the church and history to see the awe-inspiring Jesus. The title of my message this morning is One of Two Kinds. And as we get into today's message, uh, you, you will understand what I'm getting at in this title, One of Two Kinds. And I need some help in the booth because my, my slide is not changing. It should uh, be on the one that says One of Two Kinds, please. Um, as I get into things, you'll understand uh, the meaning of that title, One of Two Kinds. By way of introduction, would you open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark? And let's review some of the deep theological truths that we have covered so far in this series. I want each message to be self-contained, but unfortunately that means I have to review with each one and I want to make sure that everyone knows where we're headed at in this. I I don't know about you, but I cannot stand surface-level stuff. I don't like surface-level. I don't like shallowness. I don't like relationships that are surface-level. And in an age of social media, we inevitably are prone to this because you have, you know, you have however many friends on your Facebook or your Insta or your TikTok or whatever you're doing, you, you, you know, and those can, those can become quite superficial. They're just sort of friends out in the interwebs, but they're not friends in real life. And uh, we can lose out on having deep and meaningful relationships if all we are surrounded by is surface level. Uh, the same is true in terms of information. If our understanding of things are just scratching the surface, then we're never actually getting deep into things. I, I, I don't know about you, I hope I'm not alone, but I, I trust that uh, in this room, many of you would say, I don't like having shallow relationships, it's superficial. I don't like having a shallow understanding of things, it's a waste of time. And because of this in this preaching series, Christmas Christology, I'm, I'm pushing against the culture, church culture in a way, because... In church culture, they tell you, oh, you got to keep it really easy, put the cookies on the bottom shelf, keep the sermon short, inspire the people, give it like a TED Talk, Joel Osteen, make them feel happy, uh, don't do anything fancy. And I'm like, that's just, it's surface level. People are never going to grow. If you put all the cookies on the bottom shelf, well, they'll grow, but they'll grow the wrong way. They'll grow wide. Um, they will grow wide. They will grow wide. You put the cookies on the bottom shelf. You've got to put them up high, so they, they got to jump and do a little exercise, burn some of those cookie calories. So... In this Christmas series, I'm, I'm pushing us deep. We're, gonna go, we're going into doctrine. We're digging into some deep stuff. 
Around Christmas time, teachers of God's Word often sort of focus on the narratives, the angels, the wise men, the manger, and the shepherds, and whatever. And uh, no doubt, if you go through our website of sermons on past advents, we've, we've done that too. But this year, I just wanted to just go deep. Let's get under the surface. Let's get way beneath the surface with this Christmas Christology. So instead of looking at the nativity scene, I decided to take us behind the scenes of the nativity in order to get into the breathtaking theology of the Christmas child, Jesus the Christ. It's time we get beyond the surface level of pop Christianity and go deep into our relationship with Christ. And if you want to go deep in your relationship with Christ, let alone with anyone, you need to know who they are. If, if you started dating someone and every time, you know, you go out on a date, that person tries to tell you about themselves and you go, I, I, you know, I don't need to know all that. Let's just talk about the movie. You know, you say, uh, no, I want you to know me. I want you to know my story. I want you to know facts about me. It's a part of having a relationship. And so to go deep, we're going to be looking at the facts of the Christ child, of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going back to the very beginning. Because the baby in the manger had existed before he was conceived, before he was born. He's existed for all of eternity. In fact, he is God of eternity, God the Son. So we're looking at some basic truths about the Christ child in this Christological study. We're looking at his deity, humanity. Today we'll be looking at what we call his hypostatic union. And on our Christmas Eve service, we'll be looking at the virgin conception. Uh, Four parts in this series, and I may slap a fifth on it. We'll see. Christians believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God, so if you want to talk about Jesus, you have to talk about God and to make sure that everyone is on the same page about God. If we're going to talk about God, we need to talk about the doctrine of the triunity of God, because when we talk about God, we're not talking about any old generic God. We have this word God in English, but you say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm not an atheist. Uh, you know, it's kind of popular nowadays. Uh, to believe in God. With the advent of the Jordan Petersons and others, it's kind of been brought back in vogue that it's intellectually acceptable to believe in God. But the question isn't so much whether or not you believe in God. The question is, who is the God you believe in? And does that God actually exist? Because there's a God that men think of. There's a God that men want. And there's a God who is. And the two are often not the same. And so let's talk about the doctrine of the triunity of God, which sets us apart in terms of the gods of the culture. What do we mean when we're talking about the doctrine of the triunity of God? You have on your outline there, it says an orthodox definition. We believe that there is one God who eternally exists in three co-equal and different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of whom are fully God and all of whom are equal. Um, This on your outline, it says the orthodox definition definition. Now, orthodox, what do, what do you hear when you think orth, ortho, uh, orthopedic or the orthodontist? Uh, if you were like me as a kid, I, my teeth looked, looked messed up, you know, just like British horses or something. They were just all over the place. No offense to the British people, uh, but stereotypical tooth joke, but you know, your teeth are all over the place. Uh, you can make a killing as an orthodontist over there. Anyway, um, let me stop before it gets worse. Uh, so an orthodontist takes the crooked and makes it straight. Um, my, my kids, uh, due to a gracious donor, helped us get braces on them, and several of the kids are getting their braces off. And, you know, just that feeling when you get your braces off and you can feel your teeth again and you lick them and, oh, they look so straight. Yeah, that's right. You know, you had those, that crooked, nasty, and then you make it straight. So ortho is to make straight. Uh, docs, 
uh, it comes from a Greek word doxa, which means glory. It can also mean teaching or instruction. So orthodox is to make straight God's glory, to make straight the teaching of God. Um, to make straight the teaching of God, we herald that one God eternally exists and three co-equal and different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all of whom are God and all of whom are equal. In light of this definition, we understand that when we say Jesus is God, we specifically are saying that Jesus is the Son. Not that Jesus is the Father, or that Jesus is the Spirit, or that Jesus is all three of them wrapped in a skin baby suit or something like that. No, no, but that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son. So the God we're talking about, there's only one true and living God. This is monotheism, mono meaning one, theos meaning God. We believe in one God. Uh, secondly, we believe that the one God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These persons are actual persons. They're not titles. They're not uh, forces or, or modes or apparitions or anything like this. These are actual persons. And these persons are completely equal in attributes, uh, each with the same divine nature. So one is not stronger than the other, smarter than the other, funnier than the other or whatever. They, they all share the one same nature. Fourthly, while each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. This means that they work together to execute the sovereign will of the Godhead, the will of the divine nature. Uh, last week we looked at Jesus being baptized and we saw the Father cry out from the heavens, this is my Son. And we saw the Spirit descend on him as a dove. We see them working together in the operation, the divine operation of God. They're working together, three persons, fully and completely God, yet they're not identical, and hence they can work together. I, I can't, I, I, you know, we have the saying, I stood beside myself or something like that, but you can't actually stand beside yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, identical to myself, so I might wear different titles, like husband, pastor, neighbor, or whatever, but I, th those are all the same person. So, so husband, husband Matt and pastor Matt can't work together on something because they're the same person. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are different persons. They share the same nature. So they are uh, three persons in one, or one way of thinking about this is that they are three who's in one what. Do you know what a thing is? If we're talking about a thing, if you're like, what is that thing there? You know, what is that thing there? Oh, that's a chair. What is this thing here? It's a pulpit. Uh, you know, what, what, is, what, is, what is that thing there? That's a human, a human female. Uh, who is that thing? That's, that's Jerry Rush. Asking who is different than asking what. What, human female, who, Jerry Rush, you see. If I said, who is, who is this, who is this pulpit, you'd say, well, there's not a who in that thing. So some things have who's, some things don't have who's. God happens to be the kind of a thing, or a what, that has three who's. And he's one of a kind. He's, one, he's absolutely one of a kind. So you're never going to be walking down Manchester or whatever and go, my goodness, I met a what today that had three who's and now the Trinity makes sense. Because there are no other members in the species of God. He's, he's one of a kind. So the who's all share undividedly the same what. They cannot be separated from their nature any more than you could be separated from your nature. Jerry Rush will always be a human female. We cannot separate her from her nature. Um, so if, if, if Garfield has a cat nature, Garfield will always be a cat. The what and the who go together as one. And yet what we celebrate at Christmas is that one of the who's, one of the three who's, one of those who's 
became a man. So the three who's that have the one what, one of those who's went and got another what. Hence the title this morning, One of Two Kinds. You see, the son is one, but he has two kinds. Two, two what's, God and man. So in this series we have discussed so far, in the first installment of the series, I shared with you from the Word of God in history and science that Christ is fully and completely God. So we looked at all the data concerning this proposition that, God, that Christ is fully and completely God because he's identical to the Son. Last Sunday, we looked at the data concerning Christ being fully and completely human. That's what we've covered so far, that he's fully God and fully man. He has two what's. He's one of a kind. But that one kind then took on a second kind, so he's one of two kinds now. He's one who and two what's. He has two natures, divine and human. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and in the fourth chapter, we have a really interesting passage that will help tease out the question of how can you be one of two kinds. Mark chapter 4, draw your eyes at verse 35 if you would. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Let's stop right here for a second. Jesus is asleep on the boat. He's taking a nap. He's taking a nap. Oh, naps. Aren't they great? Love, love me some naps. It's so funny when you're a kid, you just hate napping. You know, your parents are like, lay down and have a nap. No! You know, and then as an adult, like, that's all you would love to do. You'd love to do all the things that your parents uh, force you to do. Psalm 121, verse 4. Psalm 121, verse 4 says, God never sleeps. Here's the tension. Jesus is sleeping. Let's do some logic here. Follow me. Here's a deductive logical sequence. Three points. Look up here. God does not sleep, number one, as Psalm 121, verse 4 says. God does not sleep, number one. Number two, Jesus sleeps, Mark 4. Therefore, deductively, Jesus is not God. But, Pastor Matt, you said he was God. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm just trying to tease out a question in here. Uh, and atheists will raise, you know, or critics of the Bible will raise objections like this. I, don't you guys say he's God, but here he's sleeping and God doesn't sleep. So, ha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, let's, let's keep reading. Let's, let's keep reading, tough guy. All right, sizzle chest, verse 39 here. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Okay, now let's do some other deductive logic. Follow me. God controls the weather. Jesus controlled the weather. Therefore, Jesus is God. The, the point in these two tensions here is for you to see that in the Bible, Jesus is fully human, so he sleeps. And he's fully God, so he commands creation. He does stuff that a human does, and he does stuff that God does in the same chapter. What's wrong with the logic is that it fails to account for the fact that Jesus is not just God. He is fully human as well. So going to this, this you know, God does not sleep, Jesus fell asleep, therefore Jesus is not just God. He's also man. 
right? The, 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 the sequence is set up, the syllogism is set up with a false premise. God does not sleep, Jesus slept, therefore Jesus is not just God, he's also men, a man, and as a man he needs to sleep. We see him doing things in his humanity, like sleeping, that in his deity he never ever does, nor has to do. Uh, this tension is truly amazing, and it gets us at something that we call the hypostatic union, which I'll be unpacking for you this morning. The world has, had, had never encountered such a person, and the world never will encounter such a person. Jesus is unique. There's nothing that compares to him, nothing that comes close to him. And as we consider this unique baby that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, we're pulled into a mystery, a reality that we must ponder. And as we ponder, we must dig into the data that we can understand what it is that we are pondering, and more importantly, we can understand who it is that we are worshiping and proclaiming. So you have on your outline, moving down the outline on the first page there, questions that are raised from this are as follows. How is it that Christ can be both God and man? Secondly, uh, did he sacrifice some of his humanity to remain deity? Did he, is he giving up stuff, or how does that work? Is there a trade-off, you know? I'll trade you omnipotence for weakness. How does that work? Um, so does he, does he sacrifice some of his humanity to remain deity? Does he sacrifice some of his deity to become human? Does he give up being omnipresent so that he can be located in, a, in, in the manger in Bethlehem? Uh, fourthly, if he retained full humanity and deity, which one has control? Inquiring minds want to know, I want to know, right? There are scores of other questions that we can ponder, um, but, but with regard to where I'm taking you this morning, I'm taking you right into the intersection of how he's fully God and fully man and how that works and how we can know. And so we're going to unpack more of this as we're building in this series on our Christology. So, so far, two points that are before us. Number one, the divine and human natures of Jesus are distinct. We'll talk about this more, but basically the fully God and fully man thing is real and it's also distinct. That is to say, it's separate. Um, so it's not, a, in other words, Jesus isn't a holy cocktail. You know, I like, I like uh, you know, I like mixing a little orange juice with my 7-Up or whatever. Is it orange juice? Is it 7-Up? It's both. You know, no, it's a cocktail. It's a, it's a mixture of things. Uh, Jesus isn't 50% humanity and 50% deity shaken but not stirred. Um, no, he's 100% each. Secondly, the divine and human natures of Jesus are completely united in one person. One who and two what's. The distinctiveness of the natures is stressed, but also the unity must be stressed. So there is separation and union. The union is in the person, the person, the son. The distinction is in the nature. In Christmas, he took on a second nature. Now, before I unpack these terms, I need to give you some other terms. And while we look at some of these terms, if you, you would move in your Bibles from the Gospel of Mark and find your way to 1 John chapter 4. So while you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, let's multitask here. I'm going to cover some terms with regard to God. It's helpful to define terms, right? Uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of debates and aggression in our culture today is relative around terms. Uh, and terms can be quite loaded, right? And they can become propaganda. And so you can say, well, what, what do you think about whatever, uh, uh, wokeness or, you know, you know, what do you think about this or that? And you use the term, you can say, well, I need to define what you mean when you, 
use that phrase, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I need you to define your terms, you know. Uh, what do you think about gender? Oh my gosh, uh, let's, uh, let's move really slow. We'll just define some terms here, okay? Uh, let's, let's define some terms. What is God? We understand that asking what is God, in a sense, is a foolish question because God is not a member of a, of a species. He is not a genius. God doesn't belong to a taxonomic rank or group. Uh, we can ask what is Fido? Fido is a dog. What is Wheezy? Wheezy is a dog. What is Snowball? Snowball is a cat. What is Garfield? Garfield is a cat. But the question of what is God is different because unlike Fido and Snowball, God doesn't belong to a species. God is not a species, a genus, a family, an order, a class, a phylum, or any type. God is God. And this is the logical conclusion of a being like God. He's one of a kind. Michael and Gabriel, you know those guys? What are they? They're angels. They are members of a species called angels. However, God is one of a kind. And so we've got to keep this in mind as we move into the message today, one of two kinds. One of those two kinds, the God kind, is a unique kind. Okay, so with this in mind that God is one of a kind, I want you to understand some theological terms for God. What is God? Very simply, and this isn't meant to be a circular definition, God is God. That's what God is. God is God. And God is a being. He is a being that exists. God exists, so he is a living being. But he is a divine being. He's unlike all other beings. In fact, he is an absolute being, uh, meaning a being that can be thought of or can exist without reference to any other being. A term that we use for this is aseity. We say that God is assay. To say that God is assay, or to speak of the aseity of God, is to describe God's independent self-existence. Unlike creation that has a creator, God is the uncreated creator. So we know from science that everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, so the universe had a cause. It's that, it's that basic law of cause and effect. The universe comes into existence, so it requires a cause. Now, the atheist may say, well, then who caused God? You say, well, by definition, God doesn't require a cause because God doesn't have a beginning. He always was and always is. He's assé. So by definition, he always exists. If you ask who the bachelor is married to, you go, that's a nonsensical question. Likewise, asking who created God is nonsensical because God is without beginning. God is assé. The aseity of God requires that he is the kind of a being who is self-existent. He is the one who originated everything and the one in whom all things find their source, existence, and continuance. He is not a dependent being. This means that in the Bible, when we read, in the beginning God created, that that act of creation is itself an act of love. He wasn't required to create. He wasn't lonely. He has perfect community in himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He didn't have to create. Creation itself is an act of love. So we speak of God, we say, what is God? God is God, God is a living being, God is an ase being, uh, God is a loving being, God is a, a divine nature. The word nature means the essence of a being, and so you have on your outline different phrases that are used in English today uh, through the, the historic tradition from Greek and Latin. We have terms like, uh, in the East, usia. We have terms in the West, in the Latin church, like substantia uh, or, or essentia. Lucia in the Greek. In English, we say things like divine nature, being, or divine essence. In church history, these concepts, namely of the Greeks, usia, got at what a thing is. In Latin, they would also speak of substantia or essentia, which is to just say what a thing is. What is the substance? Sub substance, okay? 
Like, what is that thing? Like, what makes God God and an angel an angel and a dog a dog and a cat and a cat? You're talking about the properties of a thing that make the thing the thing. So who are the three of God when we speak of Father, Son, and Spirit? Uh, We've been talking about this for some time. Indeed, there's not a Sunday that passes where I don't bring this up. But in terms of terms, let's go into the historic terms. The Greeks would talk about hypostases and prosopon. The Latins would talk about persona. Moving into modern English, we talk about things like persons, egos, relationships. To be a little bit more technical, we'll talk about subsistences or centers of consciousness, intellect, will, and emotions, which aren't exactly what the biblical texts and the tradition of the church get at with hypostases, prosopon, and persona. The word person just means an ego, an I, the who of a what. Uh, Every who, incidentally, has a what. You're never going to be like, I met the most awesome person today. And you're like, oh, where is that person? Uh, They are not spatially located anywhere because they don't have a what. Uh, All all who's have what's, although not all what's have who's. Like the illustration of the podium doesn't have a who. Uh, But the illustration of 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 the female human Jerry Rush has a who. Persons don't just emerge out of nothing. They come from substances, beings, essences. So a person is a subsistence of a substance. To subsist, in the Latin, it means to stand firm. A person is a subsistence of a substance. Huh? Well, when a substance is autonomous in its operations, that's a person. When the substance has an I, that I has subsisted. You are a person. So while a chair or a pulpit is a substance, it is not a person because no I has subsisted or emerged from it. Maybe in a Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast, right? The furniture, the candle turns into a person, right? But that, you know, that's obviously make-believe, but you can understand just uh, using an illustration there of how a candle could turn into a who in some hypothetical universe. But back to life back to reality. Uh, So the Greeks spoke of prosopon. It's a song. Some of you don't know it, but if you know, you know, you know. Now it's playing in your head and you can't get it out. Um, The Greeks spoke of prosopon and apostasies to mean the rough equivalent of our English word person. Uh, If you took church history with me, you recall the Cappadocian fathers spoke of the Trinity as three hypostases and one usia. The Latins spoke of persona, which is where we get our word person. A person has an objective existence. Now that said, our modern concept of person in English and North America in particular isn't exactly what the ancients meant, let alone the biblical witness in proclaiming one God and three persons. Today in our culture, we use the word person, and it often comes with like Freudian, Jungian psychological baggage that leads into a kind of emotional individuality uh, or a unique personal consciousness that is tied to your mind and your will and your emotions. However, in God, God has one will and one mind, and he has impassably unified emotions that are shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, So the, the Father doesn't have a will that's different than the Son. The Spirit doesn't have a will that's different Uh, than the Father, right, so that they're constantly compromising or something like this. They have one unified will. The modern notion of a person, if we're not careful, can lapse into tritheism because it overemphasizes individuality and emotion and separation and will, uh, whereas the biblical witness actually emphasizes the oneness of God and all these things. Okay, then, we're studying three persons. We're studying one God. Uh, Persons or eyes or, or who's. Right? And what a thing is, is just getting at its essence. So God is one being. One being, okay? 
1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John is speaking of knowing God here, right? He talks about those who know God. So in our study of God, as we're probing into terms in history and scripture, the aim of this is to know him. And John says you can know him. Right? There are people today that would lead you to believe, among agnostics and atheists, that you can't know God, which itself is a contradiction. Uh, for those who say you can't know anything about God, they're claiming to know something that they know about God, all the while saying you can't know anything about God. It's like saying I can't speak a word of English. You kind of just did, right? Uh, you can't know anything about God. Well, if you can't know anything about God, how do you know that you can't know anything about God? That's a claim to know something. You can't get anywhere with this. The witness of Scripture is that we can know God. And the fundamental rootedness of this is in God. Look at verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. I shared with you about how the Bible opens with, in the beginning God created, right? And you follow that storyline. It's a storyline of unrequited love. God creates the world. He wasn't lonely, lacking. He's perfect. He, he's assé. He's, he's independent. He doesn't, he doesn't need. He, I, I feel lonely around the holidays. You know, he's not swiping, looking for someone to, you know, go have coffee with or whatever. He's, he's God. But the storyline of the Bible in human history is a story of unrequited love because God creates, pours his love out on creation, and humanity just backstabs and, and tramples all over his love, rejects him, leads a rebellion against him, and as a result, the earth is in disarray. The giver of life was rebelled against and spat upon, and so the taking back of life has ensued, and hence... 10 out of 10 people die because 10 out of 10 people are born into sin and is a part of this rebellion. The one who does not love does not know God. Verse 8, for God is what? Love. Now, the triunity of God explains how God is love. If God were only one person, then God could not be love because one person can't engage in an act of love. It requires more than one person to do that. So God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son, the Spirit loves the Father. You have this God who eternally exists in a bond of love. Verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. In Christmas, the Son, the only begotten Son, uh, in the Greek translation, it comes from this word monogenes. Begotten, monogenes doesn't mean created. It means one of a kind, okay? Monogenes. Uh, in terms of doctrine in the church, we talk about the eternal generation of the Son. He's eternal. He wasn't begotten in the sense of being created. He's always been in existence. He's monogenes. He's one of a kind. He's eternally, eternally generated by the Father. There, there, would, there, there in this text we read of him taking flesh so that he would become the propitiation of our sins. To propitiate is to satisfy wrath. You've offended someone, as a result you've come under their righteous anger. To propitiate is to satisfy that anger. The son takes on flesh to live as a man for us. To die as a man for us taking the, the anger that was belonged at us upon himself in order that we can be forgiven and set free. There would be no Easter if there was no Christmas. 
There would be no Christmas without this Christology we're discussing. It may seem abstract. It might go over your head. You might have to jump a little or climb up to get the cookies on the top shelf, but when you get there, it is sweet because we are talking about the one who has come for his people. According to Scripture, this then is about knowing God. The Scripture tells us what God is, who God is, and who Christ is. The persona Christi, the person of the Christ. He is veras Deus, true God, and he is veras homo, that is to say, Christ is the true man. He is one with us in humanity, and further, these two kinds, God and humanity, hence the title of today's message, one of two kinds, they are united in one person. This one person is the eternal Son, who is the historical Jesus of Nazareth, and who he reveals to us. And this is not over your heads. This was written for God's people to understand, and for 2,000 years we have been talking this way. But alas, the church in North America has, has lost its mind. And most of what goes on in the name of preaching and teaching today requires you to leave your thinking caps at the door, uh, to check your brains at the door, and never be taught these things. Uh, but God's, God's people wouldn't la have lasted the sands of time if they hadn't been teaching these things, and these things are meant to be understood. Jesus was a blue-collar worker. The Scriptures, our New Testament, was written in Koine Greek, not classical Greek. Koine Greek is the street Greek. It, it's the common language. The creeds of the church are written for commoners. God wants us to understand this. Jesus came so that you would know him, not so you toss your hands up and go, oh, this Trinity stuff, I don't understand it. No, no, this is for you to understand. He came, he came to reveal something to us. And he spoke in the language of the people and communicated this to them. So, so hold on. you got an outline. If some of it goes over your head, that's, that's totally fine. But keep digging in. Let's move from 1 John over to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll continue building on our theological terms and our Christological terms. In terms of biblical terms that we have for Jesus in the Bible, he's huios, he's son, he's logos, he's the word. He's kurios, he's Lord. Jesus' favorite self-designation of, uh, of, of himself is the Son of Man, which pulls from the Hebrew prophets of a divine figure who comes from the heavens to the earth. He's, he's Son of God. We, you have those biblical terms, and then let's talk about some of these theological terms on your outline here. Number one, nature. I've already said a lot about nature. The essential properties of a thing, a nature or a substance, is simply the particular kind of a thing. With regard to Jesus' deity, he's one of a kind. With regard to his humanity, he becomes a member of a species. Think about that. So when you point at the historical Jesus of Nazareth, then you say, what is that? True answer, God, God the Son. True answer, a male human. Right? And that male human is one of a species. That's mind-blowing to me. So we must understand his nature as God and man. We must understand his person, the ego, the one who is talking in your red letters in your Bible. That's the eternal Son of God. When we talk about the incarnation of him uh, in Los Angeles, we all love to eat carne asada, right? Chili con carne, right? Carne is flesh. To incarnate is to take on flesh. Understand, though, that when we say flesh, we... We mean it kind of uh, synecdotally, which is to say all of humanity. He's not just God the Son in a, in a, 
in a skin suit. What are those, those uh, body glove things you put on to go to the beach uh, when you're a wimp like me and it's too cold? And you zip that thing up. He's not God in a body glove suit. He's not just a skin suit, not just flesh. But by flesh, we mean total humanity. Number four, a term that's good to know is theanthropos. Theos is where God, anthropos, uh, anthropology, that's that cool place where you buy stuff. Uh, anthropos means man. Uh, so the ancients would talk about this historical name that Jesus is the God-man. They call him God-man. You want to say, what is that? He's the anthropos. He's God-man. Here's, a, here's another term that's worth knowing. Homoousia. Jesus is the same essence or nature, homoousion, with the Father and the Spirit. Not homoousion. Let me talk about the differences here. Terms are important. Okay? With any subject, if you're like, I want to learn physics, there's going to be all these words you don't know. And then as you learn the words, then you can appreciate what's going on. Or like me, uh, you, you know, doing my PhD in London, uh, friends would take me to cricket games. Uh, and <laughs> I'm like, ah, I don't know what's going on here. This is so boring. You know, they're like, ooh, 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 he, he did a whatever. I don't know the terms, so I, I can't appreciate what's going on. But then when you learn the terms, then you're like, oh, this is fun, you know. And when they come on this side of the pond and we take them to a Dodger game and they're like, what's an RBI, what's a slider, what's a curveball, and you explain it to them. And then they're still bored because baseball is kind of boring. But, you know, hot dogs. Um, anyway, I'm going to get emails from you baseball people. So uh, let's stop on number five here, homoousia, not homoousia. A moment ago I told you that the Greek word for substance was ousia, Remember? Now, you guys all know what, what homo means, uh, and that's a loaded term today, so uh, stick to your notes, Matt. Stick to your notes. Okay, homo just means the same, okay? In Greek, homo means the same. Usia means substance or nature, so same substance or nature. Um, it's, it's worth saying here on another sidebar, a sidebar to the sidebar, uh, when, when I was in seminary taking classes on preaching, uh, you know, many professors would say, don't use these fancy terms. People just can't understand them. You just got to make it all simple, you know? Uh, you know, like, like Rick Warren or like, you know, this guy or that guy. You know, just got to keep it simple. These, you know, people in the church, they can't track. And I thought, that's so condescending. Like, you don't know my people. You don't know what they can track. Uh, no, heck no. We're, we're going to teach the terms because this is for everybody. This isn't just for the elite in the ivory tower institutions. Everybody needs to know this stuff. Further, so they can hold the ivory towers accountable, because as we've seen recently, a lot of our ivory towers are losing their minds. Stop, get back on track, Matt, before you get yourself on trouble. So, Harvard, Penn. Okay, so the early Christians, they use these phrases to teach, to teach that Jesus was of the same nature as the Father and the Spirit, homoousia. Um, out the gate, like with most movements of any kind, there's always counter-movements, right? So there's people who come out and you say, hey, like, don't kill innocent people. And then people come out and they're like, well, yeah, you can. Or, hey, like, boys are boys and girls are girls. No, they're not. Oh, don't oppress me. There's always counter-movements that always want to redefine terms. So the term homoousia in the ancient church was met with resistance, there were those who are known as the heterousios. Hetero means different, homo means same. So in this case, it was actually good to be homo and not hetero, because hetero, we're saying, uh, Jesus is of a different substance than the Father. Now, homoi is a word that means like. 
There were a group known as the Arians, who were followers of a historical figure named Arius, who taught the Homoi doctrine. This is where we get this saying, not one iota of a difference. Actually, there's a huge iota of a difference. So notice, there's just a little iota missing, but this is a drastically different term. Either he's God or he's, well, he's like God. Well, that's totally different, right? Yeah, he's like God. Uh, okay, well, I think we all should strive to be like God, to be godly. Jesus is more than godly. He's actually God. Okay, on this note, with Christmas upon us, it is also worth noting that the historical figure, St. Nicholas, the real figure, not, not the Coca-Cola Santa Claus that, you know, uh, you know that, that we have today, but the real St. Nicholas, who actually served the poor, poor children with gifts, uh, he was a theologian. And he was uh, hot to trot against the, the Homoiousians, Arius in particular. Historical tradition records that at the Council of Nicaea, in the early 300s, St. Nicholas had enough of Arius, and he actually, he actually uh, you know, he, he threw hands down and, and slapped him, history records. Uh, so here you've got this little meme that's going around of the kid sitting on Santa's lap. Homoousias or homoousias? Huh? You're not the real St. Nicholas, you know? Uh, so now you can understand the meme. But for hundreds of years in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they've actually been painting memes. Uh, so here's a, here's a picture of an ancient, ancient Orthodox meme, a detail. Here you see St. Nicholas. He's got the strong hand up. He's about to, he's about to slap it down on Arius. Uh, in my own house just yesterday, uh, my, my baby boy, uh, my two younger boys, but the baby boy, uh, just out of nowhere, we just, you know, it was like he just Will Smith styled his, uh, his brother. We just heard the smack, you know, and I come out and I'm like, whoa, what was that? And all the other kids are laughing and one kid's holding his head and uh, the six-year-old is like confident, like, yeah, you mess with me, you know. And my wife goes to tell sweet little Obi, son, you, you know, you got to use your words. You got to use your words. And Obi says, uh, words don't work, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you just gotta, you gotta lay it down, you know? He wasn't listening. You're like, it's kind of St. Nicholas. Kind of St. Nicholas. Arius, get that homoy out of here. Pop, pop. Okay, not condoning slapping at home. Don't send DCFS to my house. Okay, so heresy is the opposite of orthodoxy. Uh, the Arians, the heterousians, the homoousians in the ancient church, they're doing that. Incidentally, we still have hetero and homoousians today. You have Jehovah Witnesses, you have Mormons, you still, you still have this. And functionally, we probably have people in churches who, who are thinking it because they've actually never been taught because, uh, you know, oh, those people will never understand it. I beg to differ. Number seven, the next term that's very important to understand is hypostatic union. This is the theological description of the union of the two natures of Christ in one person. So he's not deified humanity, nor is he humanified deity. Okay. So that leads us to point number two on your outline, the hypostatic union. You're like, holy cow, he's only on point number two. Are we going to get out? Yeah, we'll get out. Hang on there. Strap your seatbelts on. John 1, where I ask you to turn. Look at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're reflecting on some biblical evidence here. We see here in the text, Jesus the Word is called God. He's fully and completely God. Look at verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It is very clear here that Jesus, the word or logos, is God. 
You have learned some, some deep theology this morning, and so here we could say this in technical terms. Jesus is consubstantial, homoousia, with the Father and the Spirit regarding his deity. Con with, chili con carne, right? Meat with the beans. Con with, con substance, consubstantial. So the Son is consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit. He is said to be with God and be God. You, apart from the doctrine of the triunity of God, these words would be rendered meaningless. So he's fully and completely God. Secondly, Jesus is fully and completely human. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's flesh. So Jesus is also consubstantial, homoousia, with man regarding his humanity, yet without sin. Everything that is essential to human nature, Jesus has. Now, sin is not essential to a human nature. God one day will wipe away all sin, and we won't cease to be human. Our father and mother were created without sin. So this is, you don't have to have sin to be human. Man was originally made free from sin, so Jesus is without sin. Hence, he is called the second Adam in Scripture. Thirdly, the divine and human natures of Jesus are distinct. Move from John chapter 1 over to John chapter 4. Just turn a page or two and get into the fourth chapter. As I said earlier, Jesus is not a cocktail mix of humanity and deity. His nature is, as you have on your outline, without division, without separation, without change, without confusion. The biblical evidence can be seen in places like we saw in Mark 4. On the one hand, he sleeps. On the one hand, he controls weather. It shows that he has two distinct natures. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You see humanity and deity. John 4, look at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. That's human nature. Jesus is thirsty. But then Jesus goes on to do something that humans cannot do. He tells her about himself as the Messiah, and to prove his point that he is indeed the Messiah, he says things that only God can say. Look at verse 17 of John 4. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've said correctly you have no husband, for you have five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> oh, oh, he's more than that. Hold on, honey. Right? He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, so he sees all things. Jesus is God, so he knows and sees all things. On the one hand, Jesus is thirsty, so he requires drink. On the other hand, he's omniscient and omnipresent. And he shows her this by actually telling her some things about her life that she's carrying shame for. And she's shocked, and she realizes there's something more going on. Actually, something more than him being a prophet. And as the conversation continues, Jesus presses the issue further to get her to see who he is. Look at verse 25. And then the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he, verse 26. And by the end of the passage in verse 42, the woman and the village received Jesus. And in their own words, what did they say in 42? We have heard for ourselves and know that this is the one who is indeed the Savior of the world. So what we've seen here is that in Jesus, you have his humanity and deity constantly in tension in the one person. I'm thirsty because I'm a human. I need something to drink, some electrolytes. I'm God. I can tell you all kinds of crazy stuff that no one else would know, you see. Fourthly, on your outline, the divine and human natures of Jesus are completely united in the one person. Natures are the sorts of things that, that can be impersonated. Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. 
But he's not two persons. The Bible portrays him as one person. The Bible teaches us that God took on a human nature, not a human person. Uh, Please move from John 4 over to John 17, and you'll see this. Jesus was not a dude. He wasn't a human guy walking around, or a baby that was born, and then all of a sudden the Son of God came into that baby so that you had like two persons in there. Like a demon-possessed person has a demon inside and then the human inside, so you, got, you can have two persons in that, in that one entity because they're possessed. Jesus of Nazareth wasn't God the Son possessing a human. It was God the Son who took on a human nature. John 17, draw your eyes at verse 1. Jesus talking to the Father. So again, people say, well, if Jesus is God, who's he talking to? Who's he praying to? Oh, I got you. No, no. <laughs> The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are God. So the Father and the Son can talk to each other because there's one God and three persons. Anyway, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, glorify, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Notice Jesus says, I, in speaking of himself. There are not two persons in there. Okay? He speaks of the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Only the Son of God can say that. And yet only a human needs to pray to communicate with God. Jesus is praying as a man. But the contents of his prayer are not human. They're divine. Jesus refers to the Father as God, something a human would say. He refers to being on par with God, something a human should never say. Glorify me with yourself, the glory that we had before the foundations. You see, he's not two persons. He's one person. But as a man, he prays. And as God, he says things that no man could ever say. Theological clarifications on your outline. Number one, the incarnation of Jesus is not a theanthropic nature. Number two, the incarnation of Jesus, it's it's personal. It's a theanthropic person. Thirdly, it is incomparable and mysterious. As I said, you're you're never going to be walking down the street and run into someone who has three persons in them. I mean, maybe they're like demon-possessed or something, right? But you're, ne- you're never like, oh, yeah, you're just like Yahweh. Like, he's one of a kind. Likewise, you're never going to run into a person that has two natures. There's mystery. But mystery doesn't mean illogical. Mystery doesn't mean that it's incompatible mathematically. We have evidence. We have science. We have reason. By mystery, we just mean that he is beyond all comparisons. God is always more than we can know and even imagine. And we grow in faith when we accept that we won't be able to exhaustively know him, but we can know what he has revealed, and this he has revealed in his word and through his church. Fourthly, the incarnation of Jesus is actual. Even though it is a mystery, it is real. Jesus was truly God, and whatever it is to be God, Jesus was that absolutely. He's also equally really man. So although he possessed those separate and distinct natures, he, did not, he sometimes will act as a human and sometimes he will act in his divine whatness, you see. And he acts on all things as a single person. Fifthly, the incarnation of Jesus is not a tertium quid. This means a third thing, right? Again, he's not a mixture of divine and human. I cannot emphasize that enough because Jesus is one of us, not some of us. 
Sixthly, the incarnation of Jesus can be explained with the concept of anhypostia. Anhypostasia, that which has no personality in itself, as opposed to anhypostia, that which subsists in another personality or partakes of another hypostasis. There's not time to unpack all of this, but stare at the terms quickly. En hypostasis means that which subsists in another personality or partakes of another hypostasis, a person. A simple way of getting at this, let's say that God the Son, he's hanging on the cross, fools are spitting on him, talking trash, trolls are coming by, you know, uh, you know just hating on him or whatever, and God the Son just goes, you know what, I'm done with this. And the Father's like, yeah, you can dip out. Uh, yeah, I'm done too. And the Spirit's like, yeah, yeah, let's get out of here. If God the Son just left the human nature there on the cross, you wouldn't have all of a sudden a Jewish man going, oy vey, what's going on? You know, there wasn't like another human person in there, right? The, the, the person of the Son is the person. You have one person in there. The incarnation of Jesus can be explained seventh with this phrase, communicatio idiomatum. And again, there's not time to unpack all of this, but to introduce you to terms and resource you so you can grow in this. A communication is what? It's a communication. So we think of the attributes of what it means to be human and the attributes of what it means to be divine. So humans are local, they're learning, they're limited. God is not local, he's omnipresent. He doesn't learn, he's omniscient, he knows all things. He's not limited, he's omnipotent. And yet the one person of the Son, in his human nature, there's a sense in which he's right there, and there's a sense in which the baby in the manger is sustaining the entire universe. Right? It's, there's both in this tension. The baby in the manger has to grow up and learn language. And yet that baby is also God who in the end of the age will be worshipped by all tribes, tongues, and languages, you see. Now, as I shared earlier, that there's all with the St. Nicholas thing and the Homoi Usion, you have this on your outline for further study. In terms of history, there have always been opponents who have come against Christ and said goofy sorts of things. So in the history of the church, you have church councils that come that would defend the very things that I'm teaching this morning. You have reference there to Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople 2 and 3, where they threw down and they said, hey, we're not, you know, there's, di you know, Christians have differences of opinions on some things, but this is the non-negotiable for us. You know, this, this is where we say enough is enough. You know, uh, you know even culturally, the schools, they, they do crazy stuff, but no, 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 boys' bathrooms, girls' bathrooms, like, nah, you know, you guys have done too much. We're, we're not, you know, this is kind of, we're not, we're not doing that, you see. Uh, the, the creeds of the church stand in this. You have the Westminster Confession at the bottom of your outline. It says that the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, very God, eternal God of one substance, equal with the Father, equal with the Father did when the fullness of time came, he took upon man's nature. Heresies concerning the person, if you flip to the back there, Again, not time to get into them. This is simply to give you stuff on your outline. I always like to load the outline so that you can be students of the Word. You can be like Bereans examining these things. When it comes to mistakes with regard to who Jesus is, in terms of taxonomies of cults, they either mess up his deity and say he's not God, or they mess up his humanity and say he's not man, 
or they mess up the hypostatic union, how he's God and man in the one person. And these are the various kinds of mistakes that people have made through the history of time. And we could even survey the ones today with regard to Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, and so on and so forth. But I need to land the plane. I want to bring us to the communion table. I want us to sing. I want us to herald this wondrous God of the Advent. So in conclusion, we understand if Jesus is not the God-man, we have no revelation of God. If Jesus is not the God-man, we have no salvation. Week one, we looked at his humanity. I said, if he's not human, we have no revelation. If he's not human, we have no salvation. Week two, we looked at his deity. I said, if he's not God, then we have no revelation. If he's not God, we have no salvation. Week three, we look at the hypostatic union. If he's not God and man, then we don't have revelation of God and we don't have salvation. Had Christ only been man, his death would have meant no more than that of any other martyr who gave himself for a cause. If he had only been divine, there would be no link between humanity, and his death would have been devoid of any redeeming quality. Had Christ not been one person, he could not unite together humanity and deity. Had Christ's nature not been distinct, he would not be fully God or fully man. In the union of the two natures, the atonement becomes not only available, but infinite in its efficacy. Apart from it, Christ could not have been a proper mediator between God and man, because he is God and man. So as a man, he can die in our place. As a man, he can relate to us in our despair, in our trials, in our troubles. And as God, he has the prerogative to forgive, to love, and to transform. Christians are often eager to defend the morals of Jesus or the politics of Jesus, but not the theology of Jesus. People get off course defending their political pet peeves or this or that or whatever, but they don't take the time to dig. And I, I hope you feel blessed today because we have taken the time to dig into this Christology. Lastly, if Jesus is not the God-man, we have no close personal relationship with God. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian of another century, tells a story of a prince who wanted to find a maiden suitable to be his queen. One day, while running an errand in the local village for his father, he passed through a poor section. As he glanced out the windows of the carriage, his eyes fell upon a beautiful peasant maiden. During the ensuing days, he often passed by the young lady and soon fell in love. But he had a problem. How would he seek her hand? He, he, he could order her to marry him, but even a prince wants his bride to marry him freely and voluntarily and not by coercion. He could put on his most splendid uniform and drive up to her front door in the carriage drawn by six horses and woo her. But if he did this, he would never be certain that the maiden loved him or was simply overwhelmed by his bling and splendor. So the prince came up with another solution. He would give up his kingly robe. He moved into the village, entering not with a crown, but with the garb of a peasant. He lived among the people. He shared their interests and concerns. He talked in their language and with their slang and enunciation. In time, the maiden grew to love him for who he was and because he had loved her first. In Jesus, God has come to love us. In Jesus, we see quite literally the bleeding heart of God. In Jesus, God has touched humanity. In Jesus, heaven has come to the earth. The baby in the manger on Christmas may have been sleeping, but he was holding the entire universe in his hands. Deity took on diapers, the weakness of human flesh, the eternal Son of God in the earth. And when he came, he did not cease to be God, so with every pain he endured, we witness the endurance and the tears of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God did not leave humanity to suffer alone. 
He came to suffer with us. He came to be one of us in order that we could be reconciled to God. Come to Him this morning. Confess your sins to Him this morning. Be saved this morning, saved from the wrath that is to come, to be found in the Son of God and made sons of His very own Father. Let us sing to Him. Let us come to the table. Let, let us celebrate the one of two kinds, Theanthropos, God and man. Would you bow your heads and hearts? God, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for Your Word. Oh, the riches of Your Word, the depths of the testimony of Your Word through the church in the last 2,000 years, the great apologists and theologians, the rich creeds that You have given to Your people. Lord, Your, your Scripture, of course, that stands above it all and screams out in the darkness of who You are and what You have done. We come now to the table to celebrate the Son made flesh, broken and bled out for us. Receive these songs of worship, receive our offerings, Lord, and as we come to the table, minister to us by your Spirit, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.